Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. Sometimes I start to question my own sanity. I woke up a few mornings ago thinking that most Western or NATO leaders must be microchipped. It's the only rational reason I can think of as to why they've unleashed such terror and chaos in response to a disease that, even by their own questionable records, has killed at maximum 0.03% of the world's population and less than 0.2% of the UK population. Or maybe these leaders have been paid off. I think many people in the public eye get tied up in a kind of Faustian pact early on in their careers. Faust, by the way, is the old story of a man who does a deal with the devil to get all the earthly riches and achievements that he desires, but in return, he has to sell his soul. Is that maybe why Tony Blair keeps getting wheeled out to lecture us on vaccines and vaccine passports? A famous actress who was filmed recommending vaccine passports was in the newspapers a few years ago following claims that she'd been in pornographic films early on in her career. I've suspected for a while that there are many brilliant and talented people out there, but it's often the ones who who have skeletons in their cupboards that make them easy to control, who are rocketed to success. The pop star who's offered drugs but refuses them might have a successful career, but maybe won't get to number one. It's the ones who are controllable who experience meteoric success. That's my take on it anyway. In fact, that's been my theory for quite a few years, and recent events certainly seem to reinforce it. In 2015, an anecdote started circulating that David Cameron, who was the Prime Minister of the UK at the time, had got up to some really weird stuff when he was a student at Oxford University. Apparently, he'd inserted his private parts into the mouth of a dead pig as part of an initiation ceremony for the Piers Gaveston Society. The anecdote surfaced during the emotive Brexit debate a few months before the EU referendum. I can't help feeling that it might have been connected with that. An in-out referendum on the EU was a key pillar of David Cameron's campaign for the 2015 general, general election. I tend to suspect that this was because the establishment thought that the results would be remain and that the whole EU issue would then be kicked into the long grass. But it went very wrong for them, and suddenly these lurid anecdotes about Oxford University societies started to surface. There were clearly attempts to portray Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, as a sexual philanderer, but they backfired, and from then on there were anti-Semitism smears against him. I don't think Jeremy Corbyn was ever meant to become Labour leader, and certainly not Prime Minister. I've no idea what kind of things might be held about Boris Johnson, but he certainly looks to me as if he signed one of those Faustian pacts. Of course, I've no evidence whatsoever for this, but I just think there has to be some explanation as to why almost all governments of the Western world are suddenly enacting these draconian, authoritarian diktats supposedly to combat a disease that has been associated with the deaths of around 0.03% of the world's population. And at most, according to the official figures, 
0.18% of the UK population have died within 28 days of having a positive COVID test. Or it might even be within 60 days, according to the latest government information. The percentage in Sweden is considerably lower, just under 0.13%. And the UK government officially reduced the status of COVID-19 to a low-consequence infectious disease a year ago, in March 2020. This is not to say that the pandemic is insignificant. It's very sad that people have suffered and died from COVID-19. But the reaction to it has been not just disproportionate, but unlawful and potentially dangerous. Because the kind of laws that are being enacted are often more like diktats than laws. And there's a real concern about the type of world, not just country, that we're moving towards. Last month, several people were arrested at a peaceful protest in Edinburgh. The reason given was that they they had broken the stay-at-home rule. So in other words, they were arrested for going out and about on the planet that they were born onto. Peaceful demonstrations against these authoritarian measures have effectively been banned. And with the police and crime bill, things can only get worse if that goes through. And all this is supposedly to protect people from a disease that has been associated with the deaths of 0.18% of the UK population. In other words, less than 0.2% and of 0.03% of the global population. Some people will argue that the numbers would be much higher if authoritarian measures like lockdown and the imposition of face masks had not been taken. But in Sweden, where the kind of restrictions we've seen in the UK and in many other countries have not been imposed, the percentage of deaths associated with COVID is lower than in the UK at just under 0.13% of the population. I'm repeating these numbers because it it just seems that people have a much greater fear of COVID than is justified. I'm not denying that it's horrible. There are many, many horrible diseases around. I just think it's disproportionate, this reaction. And it's leading us down a very, very dangerous path. I had thought that another Scandinavian country, Finland, was also handling the COVID outbreak in a more lawful way, with more respect for people's liberties and civil rights. I don't think they even had a lockdown as we would understand it. So I was really horrified to hear that an Estonian woman living in Finland was arrested after after refusing to take a PCR test. A film taken by the woman's 11-year-old daughter showed police forcing her onto her own living room couch and then she was forced into a patrol car and taken to have the test, which she described as a rape operation. The language seems emotive, But I actually agree, I would hate to have a swab forced up my nasal cavity and I would certainly see it as an assault. I'm astonished that so many people are choosing to have this done to them. Apparently the reason for this assault was that a few days earlier, someone who had tested positive for coronavirus had visited the yoga hall that the woman concerned, Marika Sirelpu, owns. It appears that Sorelpu did subsequently go into self-isolation, but she refused to have a PCR test. And I would have done the same because I think it's brutal. 
As I said in a recent podcast, I have willingly participated in a scientific research project into COVID-19, whereby I submitted a blood test every month for six months. But I personally would not willingly agree to have a swab pushed up my nose. Some people would prefer to have a swab pushed off their nose to having a blood test. Some people hate pinpricks. And this is exactly why such bodily invasive tests should be voluntary. It shocks me that a country I visited in 2005 and absolutely loved at the time, it seemed clean, friendly and civilised. It shocks me that it can have degenerated into treating people like this, with this brutality. Apparently, this woman, Marika Sorelpu, said that she had intended to take a PCR test once her quarantine period had ended, but the police intervened after she failed to respond to a call from the Finnish health board. She'd been out walking in a nearby wood at the time. Finland declared a state of emergency on the 1st of March 2021 because of rising coronavirus rates. To date, Finland has reported 774 deaths associated with coronavirus. It has a population of 5.5 million, so the percentage of deaths associated with COVID-19 in Finland is 0.01%. So this Scandinavian country, that at one time seemed so advanced and civilised, now seems to have turned in a matter of months into a kind of medieval-style authoritarian regime where anyone suspected of having what our government has officially described as a low-consequence infectious disease is a target for police brutality. In this way, it's similar to most countries that most of us thought were civilised liberal democracies until very recently. What's going on? Why are people putting up with this? Why are so many people actually demanding this kind of police brutality? I think a lot of it is due to propaganda. But it's propaganda like we've never seen before. And it verges on trauma-based mind control, which is a psychological system that uses fear and trauma to gain control over people's minds. Big scary numbers have been used to terrify people. The headlines scream, millions have the infection. But this is determined by shoving a swab so far up people's noses that it can contact brain fluid. The BMJ, the British Medical Journal, recently had a cover showing lots of candles with the headline, 100,000 deaths, what went wrong? So emotive. 100,000 seems like a huge number on the surface, but it's less than 0.2 of the population And sadly, people do die all the time. Thousands of people die all the time. We are all going to die. This is not to dismiss the people who have sadly suffered or died from this disease. We should certainly take all sorts of measures in response to these tragic events. But not police state measures. Not authoritarian measures. It's about getting things in perspective, not about doing nothing. A BBC News post recently said that the Netherlands had recorded 16,536 deaths during the pandemic. 16,536 is a very big number. It's a big, scary number. And it's difficult to contemplate that many people dying. 
but it actually represents 0.09% of the Netherlands' population of 17 million. If the number of people who die every year was announced on the 6 o'clock news, that would seem scary too. Large numbers of people die every year. We are all going to die. And again, that's not to dismiss those 0.09% of people who died within 28 days of a coronavirus test in the Netherlands. There has been a nasty disease and people have sadly suffered and died from it. This is another area where I've seen people behaving quite irrationally. Just because I'm saying that the numbers have been exaggerated and used to create fear and panic, that doesn't mean that I'm dismissing the people who've died. It's about getting things into proportion. Of course we should care for the sick and dying. Of course we should care for the carers. And of course we should take reasonable measures to reduce the spread of this disease. But imposing authoritarian measures that restrict people's freedoms and destroy small and medium businesses is a completely disproportionate response. This is a psyop that's being perpetrated and it's making people behave with emotion instead of rationality. Coercing people into wearing face coverings perpetuates the impression that there's something very unusual and terrifying going on. And yes, there is, but it's not COVID. What's scary is the way that so many people have been complying with these extraordinary impositions. One of my old friends, a really lovely person, was whooping with joy on social media because she just had her COVID jab. She was just so relieved. People have been scared out of their wits by this exaggeration of fear in the press. Just for comparison, in the mid-1990s, I saved up and went travelling around the world. I visited India in 1995. I never knew at the time, but apparently there had been an outbreak of bubonic plague just before I visited. I only heard about this years later. It wasn't announced on the six o'clock news or on big billboards. I'd had all the required vaccinations, but there's no vaccine for bubonic plague. I checked with all the foreign office agencies before I left the UK about any dangers, and no one warned me about this plague outbreak. If I had been warned, would I have changed my plans? No way. I might have read up on what to do if you catch it. I might have discussed it with my doctor. And I might have avoided some of the worst hit areas. But I knew when I travelled that I would be facing potential dangers. Life is full of risks. I enjoy climbing and mountaineering, so I spend a lot of time thinking about risk and how to reduce it. What risks are worth taking and what I should avoid doing or protect myself against. There's also this idea that we're due a pandemic, that we've treated the earth so badly that we're now getting our inevitable payback. I really hate this idea. I'm very concerned about the environment, about species and extinctions, about the devastation caused by plastic waste and pollution. But weaving this into a kind of religious guilt is total nonsense in my opinion. We've been naughty children and we're going to be punished with unimaginable new diseases. We should wring our hands and hang our heads in shame and we should be alert for the next pandemic. 
This kind of nonsense disgusts me, and it dismays me that people believe it. Yes, we should certainly take care of the earth and of nature. I'm all for that. But in developed countries, in spite of junk food and processed food, we are so much healthier than we were in the past, even just a few generations ago. And we have vastly improved sanitation. Our paranoia about health and our increasing guilt just for existing, it seems. Sometimes it all seems to me a kind of narcissism. I recently read the autobiography of the poet Stephen Spender, World Within World. And there was a paragraph that really made me think about how drastically things have changed in the UK on a psychological level over the past few decades. In this paragraph, Stephen Spender described going to a midday concert in London during the Second World War. He wrote, One day at a midday concert in the National Gallery, I listened to the playing of an early Beethoven quartet. In the middle of the minuet, there was a tremendous explosion. A delayed action bomb had gone off in Trafalgar Square. In the trio of the minuet that they were playing, the musicians did not lift the bows from their strings. A few of the audience, who had been listening with heads bowed, straightened themselves for an instant and then resumed their posture. I remember back in the 1980s when AIDS surfaced and there were emotive government posters saying things like don't die of ignorance with dramatic imagery. But those posters had a more direct message warning people to wear condoms during sex. Maybe early on in the AIDS outbreak there were some ads that were criticised for fear-mongering. But it wasn't the same kind of fear-mongering, I think, that's going on today. I've seen very few COVID ads because I don't watch TV and I live in a small town. And who goes into the centre of town these days anyway when everything's shut? But when I do see some of the COVID-related ads that the government's putting out, they just turn my stomach. They seem designed to play on our most negative emotions, fear, guilt, judgmentalism. There was one ad that I saw on Twitter recently. In fact, it had been posted on billboards in January, but I just didn't see it back then. It depicted a health worker with a mask on, but the overriding image was blood. The whole image was washed with a kind of transparent red hue that evoked blood. It triggered a really angry reaction in me because it just seemed to be the worst, most evil fear-mongering that I'd seen for some time. And I think it would probably trigger quite a different reaction in many people. It would trigger horror. I think that's what it was designed to do. There was nothing rational about this poster. It looked as if the health worker was working amid a, a sea of blood. It just seemed designed to trigger those emotions of fear and panic. In fact, if the poster had been advertising higher pay rates for nurses, I would have felt much less angry about it. Because, of course, health workers do sometimes have to work in very unpleasant and even dangerous conditions. But the real aim of posters like this, while they appear on the surface to be protective of health workers and the sick, their real underlying aim is to coerce us into giving up our freedom through fear. 
And I sometimes think many people are only just starting to understand what that really means. I've often thought over the years, especially when travelling, that many people hold this warped assumption that the reason we live in a so-called free liberal democracy that lots of people would like to come to is because we're just peaceful, free kind of people, not like those mad foreigners in war-torn countries. That's the way that many people seem to see things. But in fact, our freedom has been hard won, very hard won, and it has to be constantly worked at and protected. It does not just get handed to us from our dear leaders. I've spoken in an earlier podcast about the Scottish Radical War of 1820 when three men were sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered for campaigning for one man, one vote. In the end, the sentences were commuted to hanging and beheading because the authorities feared the wrath of the crowd. And that was in central Scotland in 1820. The men were posthumously pardoned a few years later. The government clearly saw the error of its ways. There were big commemorations planned for the 200th anniversary of this very troubling episode, but they were overshadowed by the COVID crisis. Ironic that the commemoration of such an important date in the struggle for democracy was overshadowed by emergency diktats and the advent of a police state. It's even more ironic to me that one of the three men who was hanged and beheaded in 1820, James Wilson, was a resident of Straven, a small town near where I grew up. And he was arrested after being involved in the march from Straven, where a group of 25 radicals marched from Straven to East Kilbride, seven miles away. They turned back eventually, having been warned of an army ambush and treachery from the government. But arrests were made on their arrival back in Straven. The reason this is ironic for me is that I grew up in East Kilbride and as a teenager me and my friends used to cycle to Straven and yet I never heard about James Wilson or anything else about the Radical War of 1820 either at school or at university where I studied Scottish history. In fact my mum also studied history at university she went to Edinburgh University and she also learned nothing of this episode. In 2001, there was a debate held in the Scottish Parliament about the Radical War. And some of the speakers complained about the absence of this important historical event from the school curriculum. To me, it's just another example of how our history has been skewed to suit the interests of the ruling classes. And we're clearly seeing how our current affairs reporting is being skewed in a similar way with a national broadcaster refusing to give any credence to scientific perspectives that disagree with the establishment view. For example, the Great Barrington Declaration. And at the same time, the voices that disagree with the COVID vaccination policy are being eliminated randomly from social media. Given the enormous profits involved in the global COVID vaccination policy and other aspects of COVID, I strongly suspect the involvement of organised crime in all of this. I was looking for something online recently which had nothing to do with COVID or with my podcast and I stumbled across an episode in the Bahamas which shows how governments can be bought. And it all happened quite a while ago. But I reckon this kind of thing happens routinely in many governments. We often hear about millionaires and billionaires funding both sides of the political divide to buy influence. 
The case that I'm talking about involves the fashion mogul Peter Nygaard. He was said to have had a net worth of more than $800 million in 2009, and he built a luxury compound at Lyford Quay in the Bahamas. The compound was visited by the rich and famous, including royalty, according to Wikipedia, Michael Jackson, the elder George Bush, George H.W. Bush, Robert De Niro and Prince Andrew were visitors. And he's also been filmed with, uh, been photographed with Bill Gates. But in December 2020, Nygaard was arrested on charge on charges of sex trafficking and racketeering. And he's also been accused of rape and various other things. He's currently facing extradition tar- charges to the US. One of the charges made in the sex trafficking case was that Nygaard had provided members of the PLP government in the Bahamas and corrupt police officers in the Bahamas with children and young women to engage in commercial sex acts with. This information is on the Wikipedia page for Shane Gibson, a former Bahamas politician who was forced to resign in 2007 following newspaper photographs showing him in a fully clothed embrace with Anna Nicole Smith. According to the Wikipedia page for Gibson, there were allegations in the lawsuit that Nygaard gifted Smith to Gibson. And many people might remember Anna Nicole Smith. She was a model and she got up to a lot of uh, kind of wacky exploits. She was in some films and things. She had some high profile affairs and she died in very mysterious circumstances in 2007. The newspaper photographs were not published until after the death of Anna Nicole Smith. She died at age 39, apparently of a prescription drugs overdose. And her 20-year-old son had died just months before, also of a prescription drugs overdose, while visiting his mother in hospital after she'd just given birth to her daughter. The whole thing seems extremely weird and questionable. There's definitely something not right about that case. I don't know whether the current members of the Bahamas government have signed any of the kind of Faustian pacts that Mr Gibson may have become involved in, not to mention anything that the doomed Anna Nicole Smith might have got involved with. But it just indicates once again the kind of high-stakes, sleazy practices that rich and influential people are often involved in. And it's certainly not confined to the Bahamas. UK politicians are definitely given financial inducements. And every now and then, rumours start to circulate, indicating that maybe there are more, more sleazy Faustian inducements. Those rumours are usually quickly silenced using the media or legal means. One of the inducements that we commonly hear about in the UK is the revolving door syndrome, where politicians, usually government ministers, step into cushy jobs in business and industry as soon as they retire from politics. Of course, it's all just coincidence. I noticed one of those coincidences several years ago, shortly after moves to privatise the Royal Mail by the then Labour government. This was one of the most unpopular privatisations in UK history, and it was handled in government by Peter Mandelson, Lord Mandelson now, who was then Business Secretary. After the Labour government went out of power, I noticed that Peter Mandelson had become a chairman or senior advisor of Lazard's bank. A very cushy number indeed. 
I thought to myself, how did that happen? I never realised that Peter Mandelson had so much expertise in matters of finance. According to the Daily Mail, Lord Mandelson was introduced to senior people at Lazard's by his friend Nat Rothschild, the son of Bilderberger Jacob Rothschild. In fact, many Lazard's CEOs have been attendees of the Bilderberg Group conferences. When the Royal Mail privatisation finally went ahead under the coalition Conservative Lib Dem government in September 2013, Lazard's was paid £1.5 million to advise the sale. A storm erupted when it was later revealed that not only had Lazard's advised the sale, but its investment arm had made billions of pounds of profits for its investors in the sale. In an article entitled Firm that advised ministers on Royal Mail sell-off also made £8 million from shares, the Daily Mail reported The controversial stock market float made billions for investors but left taxpayers £750 million out of pocket on the first day of trading. The article continued to say that Lazard Limited was the parent company of Lazard & Co, which was one of the companies that advised the government, and it was also the parent company of Lazard Asset Management, which bought and sold the shares. Lazard Asset Management was given a special allocation of 6 million shares in Royal Mail as a priority investor. By comparison, ordinary investors were typically given just £750 worth of shares each, and any ordinary investor who applied for more than £10,000 worth of shares got nothing. So, although Lazard & Co advised the government to float the shares at a price of £3.30 each, the price leapt to £4.70 each within days of the sale flotation. The government at the time initially refused to name the 16 priority investors who benefited from this bonanza, describing the information as confidential. But Vince Cable, who was business secretary at the time the sale went ahead, eventually published the list. The elite investors included sovereign wealth funds such as the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and the Soros Fund run by billionaire George Soros. Another elite investor was Lansdowne Partners, a hedge fund whose former chief executive, Sir Paul Ruddock, is a large donor to the Conservative Party. All of the elite investors got millions of shares from the sale of Royal Mail, so they were able to pocket millions of pounds from the public sell-off. The other elite investors were Threadneedle Asset Management Limited, BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, GIC Private Limited, Capital Research Global Investors, Fidelity Worldwide, Q8 Investment Office, Schroders, Standard Life, Oxif Capital Management, Henderson Global Investors, JP Morgan Asset Management, Lazard Asset Management, And third point, and that's from a government paper. This is just one example of the way that government ministers often step into cushy consultancy-type positions that can surely present inducements for all kinds of policies. It happens so often that I really think people have just come to accept it, 
even to expect it with a shrug of the shoulders. It's happened in companies dealing in armaments after wars, and it's happened in the field of health after measures that affect the NHS, and and that's before COVID. I think most people just don't give things their full attention until they are hammered on the BBC News. And at the moment, the only thing the BBC News seems to be hammering is COVID fear and panic. So the corruption just continues and gets worse. And I think it's really got to a crisis point now. In fact, I think there'll be quite a few people who are very influential in the current COVID crisis who will be expecting to step into very cushy jobs once things settle down. If you want to answer that old question, qui bono, who benefits? All you have to do is follow the money. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.